Justin Peterson. And I'm Brian Lee. Welcome to the Voice Culture Podcast, where we traverse the rich historical legacy of voice training from the greatest minds and teachers of the art. Each episode features lively conversation, fascinating historical insights, and practical application for today's singer. Hey, Justin, how are you doing today? Hey, I'm good. How are you? Pretty good. Pretty mellow. I've had a really busy Saturday here. Uh, I was doing a whole bunch of stuff for Nats and I did a little teaching and sort of recovering from the week. So, uh, but I'm really excited to be here talking with you about singing. Absolutely. Absolutely. I have a question for you. Oh, yeah? How did you get started in music? (sighs) What a great question. So for me, I would say it was inspiration in my family uh when i was about three my aunt my mother's younger sister came to live with us and finish high school in our district and she played the flute really well for a country girl she was a really good flute player and i was just entranced with her flute playing Mm -hmm. um it i just i just thought wow she's playing on this metal pipe and making these beautiful sounds come out. And our family was a inf- very informal singing family, you know, especially my dad um, sang a lot. And so, you know, I, I had a lot of, uh, you know, nursery rhyme music and that sort of thing. But then my aunt, who was involved with like concert bands and stuff, that really kind of got me hooked in there. So, mm. yeah. How about you? Oh. Um, I would, well, I grew up in a home where there was music all around all the time. Uh-huh. Um, mostly um, music of the 50s and 60s, because that was sort of my parents' high school music. Mm-hmm. So that was sort of what we kind of listened to around going in the car. Yeah. Um, I got really into country music as a young singer. I think, I mm. mean, definitely five, six, seven was into mm-hmm. country because, you know, I grew up in Missouri and that was a, you know, sure. that, that was a currency of the of the culture that I grew up in. Um <clears throat> But I, I, I'm interested, too, in the question of when you started to take... Le- so you loved music, right? You had mm-hmm. these experiences. And then you took music. Can you remember what your expectations were starting lessons? Like, what did you expect to get out of taking lessons? Whether it was voice or whether it was instrumental uh, lessons. Yeah. So I didn't have any lessons in music at all. I taught myself a lot of keyboard uh, when I was five and six. Mm-hmm. Uh and then, but I didn't have any lessons in anything until band in fifth grade. So I was 10 and mm-hmm. I started on the cornet, a uh, trumpet-like instrument. Um, and it was really clear cut there because it was learning how to play so you, that you could play in the band. And so I wanted to... The goal goal was to play in my little fifth grade band and then someday play in a really, really good band. Mm. Okay. So you had that, you had that vision then. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I mean, I used to organize practice sessions at my house with the trumpet section. Get out of here. Really? (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I, our cornet section. Uh, Like like fifth graders here? Yeah. Yeah. Like invite. I'm dead. Fifth graders over. We would have a sectional. (laughs) I'm that's too good for words. That's amazing. Yeah, that's hilarious. Yeah, yeah. And then I started, uh, so I took lessons uh, 
on band instruments of some form or another all through high school uh, in the school. And then I started studying with teachers outside. I had a piano teacher starting in seventh grade, and I took piano from seventh to 11th grade Mm. um, privately. And then I started going to Iowa State University for oboe lessons uh, at the end of 10th grade. And I did that through the rest of high school. Mm, Okay. Okay. Yeah. 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 I started, I think, uh, lessons. Well, I started piano lessons when I was in first grade. Okay. Uh, I can absolutely remember that because there was one day when my mom was running late to pick me up from piano lessons. And I was horrified because I was going to have to go to my piano lesson at late and show up and be shamefaced in front of my piano teacher. And I just was like, oh, God, oh, God. Now, was that all self-imposed or was your piano teacher strict? She was very strict. Uh, uh-huh. Yeah, she definitely was very strict. Um, and uh, I just remember b- being mortified. And, and I can remember being in first grade and standing in front of the high, uh, uh, elementary school and just having this enormous lump in my throat, like that pre-cry lump in your throat that yes. comes in. And yes. I just remember feeling enormous in my throat. That I was going to cry because my, my mom was running late for piano lesson, uh, for my piano lessons. But I didn't start voice lessons until I was 10. And the reason I started voice lessons at 10 was because I was starting to strain. Uh-huh. And my mom was really concerned that I was going to hurt my voice because she could... My mother was a bit of a singer. Her mother... My grandmother was a music teacher. So uh-huh. she saw, uh-oh, he's starting to strain a little bit. Um, I was doing a lot of heavy chest country music sounds. And mm-hmm. she mm-hmm. was worried at the top end of the range that things were getting a little tight, a little red. I was turning a little red in the face. Yeah. So she was like, maybe we need to get in and work, get work, work with somebody. But um, from there, you know, it was just a, I went through a different battery of teachers uh, for voice and maybe two or three teachers and uh, ended up with a teacher in, I want to say, middle school who was very much strictly classical and just sort of guided me to uh, my college experiences and she's she had basically everything figured out she's like okay you're gonna do this you're gonna do that you're gonna do this one of the things i think that when we're young we are are um like guess lucky to experience is that when we go into lessons we don't really have um this sort of demand of like when is this going to be done like how, how much what do i have to expect about all of this process i find that with my adult students they come in and they're like okay what can i what can i expect here Yes. What, am, what can I get? You know, how, what are my, what, how do I set my expectations? Right. Whereas children don't, because they have that free, open, kind of linear, non-linear life that they live. Yeah. You know, they, they just sort of go, okay, now I go to listen. Okay, and I go home, and now da 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 and they sort of put it away, you know. Um, it never occurred to me I'd stop taking lessons. Right. Yeah. Right. You're just like, oh, I'll just do, do this forever. I'm yeah, just going to yeah. keep on doing this forever. Yeah. But um, what usually happens is that people come in, you know, say for a first lesson, and they're really curious about uh, what's going on, you know. The, and the teacher comes in, we kind of talk them through everything and how it's going to go. And you know, mainly in the, in the first several weeks or so, the student's going to get a, an improvement because something is. We're changing up the system, right? We're we're changing. Maybe the manner of posture or alignment is changing, or maybe the breathing uh, technique mm-hmm. is getting a little bit more. Uh, figured out. We're approaching the voice in a different way, so the voice begins to respond to these stimuli. But then you get to this point with them, with all students really, where they sort of hit that snag of that plateau. Plateau, yeah. yeah. Right? And mm-hmm. suddenly all of the fun, that sort of initial launch has yeah. sort of leveled off. Right. And there really isn't anything happening that's dramatic or exciting as it was when they first started. Right. And so for a lot of people, that plateau becomes kind of a purgatory. Right. So it, 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 to me, the plateau is what flushes out the, the stickers from the levers. Right. Yeah. So and this is sort of what I um, have since learned from George Leonard, who wrote this book called Mastery, which is one of my top favorites 
for students of all stripes of any mm-hmm. discipline. Mm-hmm. I just tell students, you got to read this book because once you read this book, you'll understand what you're getting yourself into. Yeah. <laughs> if you want to be a master of something, right? If you really want to be a good singer or you want to be a good technical, um, let's see, uh, a good speaker of French or you want to be a really good chef or you want to be a really good whatever it is, whatever the mastery is, they all go through a similar process. Was all, um, George Leonard's book up yes. geared toward music or was it towards no, mastery no, of any it's skill? Just anything, really. He uh-huh. comes from Aikido, which, um, for those who don't know, it's a martial art, uh-huh. which requires a lot of discipline. It's very Eastern. He kind of comes at this from a very Eastern view rather than the Western view okay. of mastery. Um, at which they are in the East much more patient and much more uh, yes. understanding that, that these things unfold over time. Yes. Um, you know, you just have to quote the Karate Kid to people and they get it. You know, they're like, oh, you know, the wax, flo- you know, paint the fence, wax the floor, all that yeah, stuff. Right. That rudimentary thing that you're just like, what is this? Um, and, and so what, what I think we have in, in the United States, at least, you know, according to uh, Leonard here, is the idea that we have this cliche of never-ending... Uh, ascending success that you know you take a lesson and that every lesson you take is going to be better than the last one yeah and you're going to your voice is just going to get better every single time you take a lesson you're mm-hmm. just going to have breakthrough after breakthrough every lesson is just going to you know give you something uh or every practice session is going to you know just reveal the secrets of the vocal universe to yeah you, right right <laughs> and and mastery rather than being this sort of straight up arrow of, of progress is mm-hmm. really a lot of uh, plateaus, hills and plateaus. Yeah. And uh, Leonard has sort of uh, indicated this through this uh, image, which I uh, can't show here, obviously, because we're on a podcast, but it's sort of a, a hill and then a plateau and then another higher hill and then another plateau. Mm-hmm. But these plateaus are subsequently higher than the previous ones. Uh-huh. But you're spending more time there uh then you will be on the high parts of the mountain, in other words. So yeah. the work of mastery, the work of achievement of a, a mastery of, a, of, of any skill is predicated on, upon, upon being comfortable on that plateau, psychologically being comfortable and being okay with where things are. Interesting. And, Interesting and continuing angle. to do the practice primarily for the sake of the practice itself. So oh, rather, than being, rather than being frustrated you're learning to appreciate the plateau and, and be there. And then uh, he later goes on in to describe these people who are um, not able to deal with the plateau. And they fall into three different personality types that he describes, the dabbler, the obsessive, and the hacker. So these are really interesting too for us as teachers because we can sort of see how students react to that plateau. So uh, the dabbler is the person who loves the rituals and they love the new stuff and they love new equipment and they love buying the books and they love all the newness of everything, the shiny stuff. Uh, and, you know, they'll start and they'll have a little bit of fun. But once that plateau hits, they lose interest. They're just kind of like, oh, it's, oh, really? It's just going to be all of the, it's, this is what it is? This is it? And then they're like, okay. And then they drop that, right? And then they, they pick something else up. Yeah. And they go over there and they pick something else and they say, oh, well, well, let me try this. But the process, if they're not aware of it, it will repeat itself. So, yeah, maybe they go over to cooking. They take a cooking class, right? Oh, I love, I got all the new stuff. I got the apron. I got the, the, the pans. I got the knives that the teacher said. And, you know, I'm cooking, cooking. And then like a couple, you know, maybe a month or two later, they're like, oh, it's kind of, this is all, oh, there's more involved here. Oh, really? Oh, 
Oh, I don't know. If, oh, okay. And then they drop it, right? And the obsessive is a person that I've worked a lot with, which is once they get to the, um, the uh, plateau, they freak out because they're not improving. Oh. Uh-huh. They're not improving. Mm-hmm. So they get panicky. Yeah. And they get real high, they're real high energy, they're real, you know, driven, they mm-hmm. want you to tell them exactly what you, they need to do, I need to know exactly what exercises I'm supposed to do, in what order, what, how many times a day, you know, these are the obsessives, the people that come in and they're like, whoa. Um, they love the upward surge, it's like a high, right, they're, they're kind yeah. of addicted to the high of achievement, and they want always to be achieving, always to be achieving, and they cannot deal with being on the plateau, and they will push themselves merciless, mercilessly uh, in lessons. To, to achieve and to do. Um, and then finally, the last personality type is the hacker. And the hacker is somebody who is a little bit dangerous because they get just enough skill and then they just flatline. They just want enough sort of information or enough whatever to sort of just know it, but then they just kind of hack along. Mm-hmm. So they don't really hone their skills or they're not really interested in honing or improving. They just want to get enough kind of baseline information and then they're just going to hack along. As they go. And so um, that idea of mastery and those understandings of how people are going to react to a plateau can, I think, be very uh, useful to us as teachers because they can be a psychological um, encouragement to know that what's happening to the student is normal. Yes. That they're on a plateau. Yeah. That they don't have to make, you know, breakthroughs in every single lesson. And um, that's sort of the biggest takeaway from the book and it's also he says you know it's important to find the, a place where you can love being on the plateau i'm like that's where you that's where you are yeah yeah i'm on the plateau you know and the joy of regular practice the just the joy of doing right just the joy of making music or singing scales or, or doing stuff like that rather than you know this pushing driving you know trying to get to the higher level trying to get to the higher level i mean i would see pianists in school just sit in that practice room for hours and hours and hours and hours and you'd walk by three or four hours later and they'd still be in there banging away on, on Debussy or something. And you're just like, dude, go for a walk. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know, take a walk. Um, but it's a brilliant book for any teacher to read and then to give to your students for encouragement and even give it to the parents of students, you know, because a lot of times parents are the worst because they'll be the ones who are like, okay, what are the deliverables on this? You know, he's really working on this scale and, you know, it's not sounding great. And you're like, okay, calm down. Yeah. When will we see results? How, yeah, yeah. how much time do you think it'll take? To exactly. Blah, blah, exactly. Blah, blah, blah. Yeah. Exactly. I think this. Every voice teacher needs to have like, I, if I could buy a box of these books, I would literally just have a box by the piano and hand them out in every lesson and be like, read this book, you know, because it would be a way to get um, parents on board, the students on board, adult students on board, yeah, who, who are coming on board. Because a lot of times, with when it comes to voice, there's this idea of we don't know what to expect. Sure, yeah. What am I going to get out of these lessons? What am, what's going to happen to my voice? And I think as teachers, we have to be very upfront about what what are we looking for? Yeah. What are the objective measurements that we're going to know we're singing well? Like you have that, you have that beautiful saps in your book. Yeah, self-assessment yeah. protocol. Yeah. So singers yeah. can measure themselves against and say, so, oh, yeah. Something. I mean, you know, I, I say in the introduction to saps and when, and when I present it at uh, meetings and stuff, I, I was like, this is... You know, this is not the end all of self-assessment, but it's something. For God's right. sake, please come up with something. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You know, uh, yeah. <clears throat> yeah. You, you've said a couple times here, you've talked about 
The Practice. And um, I am reading a terrific book right now by Seth Godin. He's oh. a sort of popular blogger for creative and entrepreneurial people. Um, I do believe that's the second time on this podcast I've tried to pronounce that word and screwed it up. Which one? <clears throat> Entrepreneurial. <laughs> it's very French. Entrepreneurial. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Entrepreneurs. Uh, yes. But anyway, uh, the book is called The Practice, and the subtitle is Shipping Creative Work. And he approaches this idea of plateau through understanding that creative work and accomplishment has a huge amount to do with quantity, and that mm. that practice has to do with a certain quantity of work being done on a steady basis. And he takes his blog as an example. I think he mm -hmm. said in an interview recently that he has, oh gosh, it was a huge number of blog posts, mm -hmm. like 13,000 or something. And he said he could never predict which ones would become really popular and viral and which went nowhere. And he said, you know, one thing you have to realize is that 50% uh, of what you do is sub-average because mm. your average is by, by definition is, is the middle, you know, yeah. the middle. And, and somehow one has to make comfort with the fact that a whole bunch of the work you do is going to be just so-so. But that is so, so that in order to... Uh, get mastery of this thing you're trying to do and to accomplish better things. Uh, virtually nobody succeeds without putting in a lot of steady time. And um, once, you know, if, if you have a ton of God given talent, uh, there comes a point where you're at the top of what you can do with that talent. And then you need to learn how to deal with the plateau and to work. Mm -hmm. And and to improve. I mean, there's 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 always further to go for everybody, um, even if they start a few steps ahead of other people. There comes a time when there's a crisis of accomplishment that, oh, my gosh, I can't coast on being a talented child anymore. Right. Um, you know, something's and it's the whole thing of like, you know, the the kid who's the performing arts star in his hometown and he goes off to a uh, competitive college and all of a sudden uh he's, a, he's the little fish in a big pond though. yes exactly yeah, yeah. and, and i used so, to say when I, i'm sorry to interrupt you i yeah i used to have this saying and um, this is going to get us banned uh i used to have this saying in uh uh college Rope. my first year of uh, college i used to say man i went from being the shit in high school to just being shit <laughs> you know yeah yeah. because yeah. you get into college and you're like these kids can sight read and they are amazing and they're so yeah. good yeah. and they're practicing and they're working on it and i'm just like i used to you know when you're the star of your high school and then you yep. go to the real world it's like rude yep. awakening yeah yeah oh yeah 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 i definitely went through the same thing i mean i was i was like uh an instrument jock in high school i mean i could play almost all the band instruments like sort of up to a level of being able to play you know, high school band music at least. And uh, my senior year of high school, I did uh, four solos for the solo ensemble, three three different instruments in singing. Mm. And I thought I was the shit because, you know, I got yeah. superiors on everything. And then I go to school and they're like, okay, now you need to pick one or maybe two and go a whole lot deeper. Yes. And deeper than gets you into this right. plateau area totally. eventually because totally. you just... 
you cannot have the 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 up the the ascent yes. the line going up uh, uh forever forever and mm. uh it only comes after a certain amount of time on the plateau which is a little indefinite and that's what makes people crazy yes how long yes how long is this plateau going to last but mm-hmm. that's where you have to realign your priorities because you have to realize that you yeah. have to get to a place where the, the doing of the thing is the pleasure. <laughs> yes, yes. The doing of the art, the doing of the practice is the fun. Amen. And if it's not fun, you've got to figure out a way to make it fun or get help from people who can yes. help you make it fun yes. or make it uh, appealing to yourself. I tell students all the time, too, listening is practice. I mean, listening to good singers is practice. Yeah. You're, take, you're listening to models of good, of, of good vocalism. Um, I wanted to share this list of things, too, that were pitfalls on the path oh, of great. mastery. Mm-hmm. So these are things that are a danger to people who are wanting to take on a path of mastery. And the first thing he says is a, a conflicting way of life. So if your path of mastery and the way you're living your life <clears throat> excuse me, are in conflict, you're going to have some you know, trouble there. Yeah. Especially if you have maybe a, um, a spouse or a, a romantic partner who isn't supporting your you know, mastery path, that can be very difficult. I've seen that happen a lot of times. Oh, yeah. People get with somebody and, you know, why are you doing all this practicing or what are you doing with all this music? And and that's um, can be very dangerous. You know, uh, he says here, Nathaniel Brandon, who is a a therapist, a psychologist, I believe, said, Mm -hmm. never marry a person who is not a friend of your excitement. Oh, that's good. Yeah. Right. Yeah. You want to be with people who are going to be like, yeah, do your thing. So that's the first thing that Mm -hmm. that a conflicting way of life could pull you off the, the path of mastery. Yeah. Uh, the second thing he says is obsessive goal orientation. So oh. just getting super obsessive about these goals. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, everybody wants something quick, fast, dirty, give it to me now. Yeah. It's the de- he says that is the deadliest enemy of mastery. The quick, give it to me now sort of thing that we sort of have in the West now. Mm-hmm. Uh, he says it's great to have goals, but the best way of reaching them is to cultivate, hey, cultivate modest expectations at every step along the way. Uh, he said, you know, when you're climbing the mountain, in other words, be aware that the peak is ahead, but don't keep looking up at it. Mm-hmm. You know, keep your eyes on the path. And when you reach the top of the mountain, as the Zen go, uh, saying goes, keep on climbing. Yeah. The third one affects us. Uh, it's poor instruction. A bad teacher can pull you off the path of mastery. A sure. teacher who isn't serving your needs, who isn't <laughs> helping you develop, or who wants to be a guru can oh, yeah. pull you off your path of mastery. Yeah. Yeah. He says, you know, don't, you don't want to be bouncing around from teacher to teacher, but we also don't want to be sticking in a situation that's not working. If your teacher isn't working for you, get out. You know, he says the ultimate responsibility for your getting good instruction lies not with your teacher, but with you. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. I completely agree with that. Students come in, they want to just hand over the reins to us. Right. And just be like, okay, you do, the, you do it now. You, you, make it, you make me into a Cinderella. Well, that drove my a- book. You know, I, I, wa- I, I wanted to, for people to, to start getting some solid ideas about how to uh, be advocates for themselves, you know, and, and mm-hmm. understand, okay, I desire to learn this thing. What does that mean? And, and what will success in learning look like? Mm-hmm. And, and how can I find the best learning environment for myself? Um, that, and it's so hard for young people, you know, after you've had some experience, it's much easier to get yourself yes. in a better learning environment, usually. Um, but it can be a real challenge for the young. Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, definitely. Um, the fourth thing he says here is a lack of competitiveness. And this makes me think of, uh, our brilliant colleague, Eden Castile, mm-hmm. who talks a lot about, uh, lessons to nowhere. 
right? Where you're sort of, they're coming, but there isn't any really goal or vision or sort of anything that they can measure themselves against. That's Mm -hmm. why competitions can be very good for students Mm -hmm. to go in and be around other singers. Uh, I will say as a coach for my college audition, one of the most amazing things we get to do in the summer is have this summer intensive where we're able to, where the high school students are able to see each other and compare themselves against other people. And sometimes there are tears, because some of the maybe let's say the the the, talent, um, the really talented students really shine, and the students who are kind of like, whoa, I had no idea that this talent out here existed like this in yeah. my age group, yeah. and you know they're a little overwhelmed emotionally because they're just not they haven't been they haven't seen their com- competition, yeah, and that doesn't mean ah <laughs> denigration. It means hey, I need to get my butt in there and start working right. So com- com- a lack of competitiveness. Uh, competitiveness can really um, keep you sort of like lackadaisical. Right. You know, yeah. it can kind of not, it won't m- motivate you as a force. But then on the co- on the inverse of that is over-competitiveness can pull you off the path of mastery. Mm-hmm. If you're just being, I know, I mean, oh my God, how many singers who make winning about everything? Everything is about winning. Yeah. You know, I did this competition, I did that competition, I win this, I'm getting this award. I mean, we used to have this joke about, this is a terrible joke, are you ready? So we used to have this <laughs> opera joke. The, the guy, the baritone, comes home and finds his wife in flagrante with another baritone and the baritone that ca- the husband says what are you doing and the baritone says well in march i'm going to be going to covent garden and i'm going to be singing in that <laughs> opera and then after i'm done with that like this is like the, the place right yeah the accomplishment so, uh, yes, Olympics. Uh, yes yes the, yeah. the over competitiveness right yeah. like that that um that just you know or beating kids over the head with you know it just yeah it doesn't matter how you play just so you win right yeah so yeah. you just play dirty and i'm like well you know that's no good no uh the sixth one is laziness mm-hmm. uh and so he of course sort of defines that as disinclined to action or exertion adverse averse to labor indolent idle slothful the bad news is that laziness will knock you off the path the good news is that the path is the best possible cure for laziness you know it's very interesting uh i have seen so many i love seeing interviews with various performing artists. I find it so fascinating to hear them talk about where they came from and how they work and how they view themselves uh, mm. in, the, in the field. And there are an awful lot of people who in interviews, very accomplished, like award-winning people, who will say in interviews that they're lazy. Mm. And, you know, it's very, it, it, and then the interviewer always sort of scoffs at that. But look at all you've done and blah, 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 blah. But I think there's a, when there's a recognition of your inclination towards inertia, mm-hmm. you know, you, you develop strategies Absolutely. for how to handle that. And you, you don't necessarily have to be the most self-motivated person to ever spring out of a womb, <laughs> you, you know, in order to accomplish if... Right. You figure out, hey, I do want this thing, but I don't. I don't f- like working hard. How can I? And then reconcile. fill in the blank. Yeah, tr- you reconcile it. Like mm-hmm. you can do it. Like, how can I trick myself into working harder? Yes. Harder. Or how can I make the work fun or yes. joyful or playful? Yes. Yes. Or how can how can I? You know, the, the, there's ways to to uh, deal with that. Not every high achieving person is a dynamo of extroverted energy. There's really all kinds of people who uh, really want something enough to achieve mastery 
in addition to or in spite of characteristics that we wouldn't normally um, associate with success. You know, there's been a lot of kids who were not pegged to be superstar successes. And like your kids who come to that summer intensive, I mean, there may be some kids with potential who are really lacking in accomplishment, who have their come to Jesus moment there. Yes. And in three years time after that, you know, they're much closer to the top Mm -hmm. because they realize, oh, now I understand a standard. How can I meet that that, standard? How do I, you know. The linchpin has been set. Yeah. 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 And I think we all have laziness. I mean, you know, anybody, sure. like for me, mastery too is a, not just singing or music, but I also like to go and exercise. So, you know, laziness is absolutely the, 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 the <laughs> domain of the person who doesn't want to go and exercise. Right. right. But there's that moment of like accumulated uh, time. That's, I think, one of the things that motivates me. It's like, look at all the time you've already put in. Keep going. Yeah, right. You know, right. keep going. And do I give myself an odd day off? Sure I do. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. But, you know, the, the, the sort of the thing has been set. The seventh thing he says that can be a blockade to mastery is injuries. Hello, I know all about that. Oh, yeah. So that can really set you you back in a big way, mm-hmm. uh, which is why vocal health and vocal care is so important for singers. Yeah. Uh, because I, I can remember um, Dr. Larson at the Des Moines Metro Opera used to always say, you know, six singers don't sing. Right. Right. If you're injured yeah. or something's going on, you can't be singing. So it's really important to listen to the body and and obviously find uh, uh, support people who can help you know monitor that. You're like, oh, you're pushing, or you know, it's getting a little too much, or whoa, watch out there. Um, yeah. So injuries can really pull you out of the path, um, including mental injuries. Right. I mean, that can something set back mentally can pull you. Back Absolutely. Out of it, yeah. You there's know. times when you need to reach out for help that way too, and it's absolutely absolutely fine. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. The last one, well, no, not last. There's several more here. Uh, okay. The next one is drugs. Oh, okay. Which is interesting to me. Um, yeah. In performing arts, we've got the whole controversies yeah. about yeah. beta blockers and dealing with stage fright and right. and uh, steroids to overcome, like, right. you know, vocal swelling. And, there, the, yes, drugs enter into it yeah. at that level. And then there's, of course, you know drugs that are used for general psychological yeah. issues and yeah oh the beta boy. blockers is a big you know i know that was a, i don't know if it probably still is you know for many people to give them take that edge off yeah but i don't know i mean i think you know if you're really hard abusing drugs as a singer or you know like alcohol or you know mm-hmm. heavy drugs you know it's important to take a look at that and be like mm, is yeah this put, is this furthering me down the path that i want to go on or yeah. Is it pulling me off of it? The next one is prizes and medals. That can pull you off the path. Hmm. Um, he says because ex- uh, excessive use of external motivation can slow and even stop your journey to mastery. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, he says that studies that show that rewarding school children by giving them gold stars initially speeds up their learning, but their progress soon levels off plateau, even if you increase the number of stars. When you stop giving stars, their progress fit falls to a level lower than that of matched groups of children who got no stars in the first place. A report of the physiological limits of running speed shows that the major factor stopping the improvement of a champion runner's speed is setting a record or winning an important medal. The champions stop not at a given speed, but when they set a record. Huh. So it's the achievement that sort of slows you down. Yeah. It's yeah. The, you know, like a, um, I got it to the Metropolitan Opera. I'm singing at the Met. I'm, yeah. I'm set. And so they, they, they start coasting. 
And there, there's a huge number of people who will support that erroneous view. The, the, you know, right. that's, that's the trap. You know, like when we give kids gold stars for reading books, um, you know, there's no opportunity for intrinsic you know, we're, we're, we're conveying the value that you do things for trinkets of payment. You don't do them because they're enjoyable or, mm. or because valuable. You love them, right? Yeah. 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 Or because you would, yeah, I think externally motivated things, they found that they don't really re reap all that much reward. When, when the we internet was just a baby, I got on this real early board, uh, message board for classical singers it was called new oh. forum for classical yeah. singers everyone oh, yeah. was on it back in the day oh yeah and it was anonymous you could be anonymous and some of us eventually came out with the real names and stuff but but um i floated this idea on there way back when of uh you know working on your voice because it's a value to you and that you enjoy working on your voice and uh, singing for the love of singing has to always be there alongside of whatever career you have mm. in singing, you know, that, and I got crucified because, <laughs> because the, the orientation of a lot of the, I don't know if they were real opera singers or wannabe opera singers, students who thought they knew everything. I don't know who it was. But a whole bunch of people said, you know, you, you know, you don't understand. It's it's about the work, and you do whatever you can do, you know, to to get the job. And and um, you know, singing for enjoyment is frivolous. You know, at at the, at the professional level that we're at, you know, that isn't even a consideration. We're just trying to, you know, survive, stay healthy, and get the next gig. Hmm. And uh, I was that like, sounds well, pretty bleak. Yeah, it does. <laughs> it's very bleak to me. Yeah, it does. Yeah, yeah. That whole wow. I don't know what. Uh, well, then they sound. And let's can I can I be a total biznatch here? Sure. Many of the people who said that probably sound miserable when they sing anyway. Yeah, probably. There's probably very little joy in their singing. I would right, say. Right. Right. Very little yeah. connection. And they're like, why don't people like my singing? Because it doesn't connect to anybody. Yeah. You know, you've made your singing about something that's a machine. Well, there are, it seems like there was a, a lot of people who were really into being impressive. Yeah. I think a lot of people are drawn to opera because of the, the grandeur of oh, it. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. And um, boy, is that a trap. Well, and, you know, I'll quote Jeannie Levetri here, but she said this, and it really stuck with me. Each musical style comes with its own mindset. Oh, yeah. Interesting. You know, it comes True. with a particular type yeah. of personality that's attracted yeah. to performing in that particular style of music. I think that's truer than truer yes. than true. Yes. You know? Which comes to my next point that takes people off the point, uh, the path of mastery, which is vanity. Mm. Right. Many people want to get on this path because they want to look good. Uh, but to uh, do mm -hmm. something well or of any significance, you might have to fall down and mm -hmm. look ridiculous. Mm -hmm. Um you know, you should be um, willing to look bad yeah, and be open to looking bad. And if you're always thinking about appearances, you can never really attain the state of concentration that's necessary for effective learning and top performance. Wow. You know? Yeah. Uh, the 11th point that keeps us off of it is dead seriousness. Nothing humorous. No funny. No break. You know, <laughs> no lightness. 
uh-huh. you know, no deadly serious, t- you know, I got, I must do this. You know, this is, this is inculcated in, uh, did I say that word right? Inculcated? Inculcated. There you go. That's the word. In many young singers, um, especially musical theater performers. I had a, a student today tell me that she went to a camp, you know, and they said, listen, if you cannot do this and you can't devote 100% of yourself to this, you need to get out of this right now and you need to do something else. So they're sort of fomenting this dead seriousness about musical theater, right? It's like, oh, yeah, you have a to serious be just, artist. Yeah, you have to be serious about this. It's got to be serious. Yeah. Um, he says, when choosing fellow voyagers, beware of grimness, self-importance, and the solemn eye. <laughs> uh, so I want to be in that party. Like, I get me away from those people. You know, yeah. let me be with the fun people. I want to be having a good time in life. Twelve is inconsistency. That's the twelfth factor here. Um, Consistency of practice is the mark of the master. Yep. Continuity of time and place, where that's feasible, can establish a rhythm that buoys you up and carries you along. There's even value in repeating favorite rituals before, during, and after practice. Oh, yeah. The psychologist Mihai Cheek sent me high, who has done uh, those studies on flow, which I love. If you've never read his books on flow, you should. Yes. Mihai Cheek sent me high. They're awesome. Yep. He points out that some surgeons wash their hands before they put on their gowns in precisely the same way before each operation. And thus strip their minds of outside concerns and focus their attention fully on the task at hand. Um, inconsistency, uh, inconsistency not only loses you practice time, but it makes everything more difficult when you do get around to practicing. But if you should happen to miss a few sessions, don't use that as an excuse to quit entirely. The path of mastery takes many twists and turns and calls for a certain flexibility of strategy and action. Cause consistency is of the essence, but a foolish consistency, is, uh, Ralph Waldo Emerson tells us, is the hobgoblin of little minds. <laughs> and though finally the last item here 13 lucky 13 is perfectionism oh perfectionism yeah. can be a real destroyer of the path of mastery yes um uh, in a way he says it's a pity that technology has brought so many masterful performances into our homes 24 hours of world-class orchestras is what the local classical music station promises me and these performances are not only meticulously rehearsed but recorded repeatedly with the very best passages spliced together and the entire recording electronically enhanced. They do that with musical theater. Hello. Mm-hmm. That's done with anything. Right. Traveling exhibits bring the works of Van Gogh, Degas, Gauguin, and Manet to our local art museums. And on television, we can watch top athletes, dancers, ice skaters, singers, actors, comics, and pundits all giving us their best. Yeah. Compared to this, how can we even talk about mastery? Then there are those... Uh, there are even those of us who are simply self-critical. Even without comparing ourselves to the world's greatest, we set such high standards for ourselves that neither we nor anyone else could ever meet them. Mm-hmm. And nothing is more destructive to creativity than this. Yeah. We fail to realize that mastery is not about perfection. It's about a process, a journey. The master is the one who stays on the path day after day, year after year. The master is the one who is willing to try and fail and try again for as long as he or she lives. Great. Great. Wow. Yeah. Those are, those are the things to watch out for on the path of mastery. Those take you off of it. It's a great book. Really, truly. Definitely recommend it. Well, I will, I will have to, to uh, dig into that one. I, uh, I really uh, have quite a pile of books, actually. But <laughs> that would be, be a good next one on top of this Seth Godin book because it goes yeah. hand in hand with related, what he's yeah. talking about in, in The Practice. Yeah. But uh yeah. Cultivate a mind a mastery mindset. Love it. Yep. Alrighty. Okay. So long for now. Okay, be well. Have a good weekend. You too. Bye bye. 
Thanks for joining us today on The Voice Culture Podcast. For more information, connect with us on our website, thevoiceculture.com.